and welcome to Writing in Faith, a podcast about the Christian and writing life. I'm your host, Daniel Dynek, and this week we're talking about creation, God's creation that is the existing universe, and what it says about Him and our creations, two things that have been around for a very long time. We're talking about foundational principles, so let's get started. It has been yet another interesting week. Bad news first, I still have not started writing book four again. Good news is I'm reading over what I have written already so that I can kind of get back in and get started. So things are moving forward with that. Already I've read the first chapter and it's a little slow. So I already have some ideas for when I go to start revising this to make sure that even though it's going to be a lot longer, um, a lot more stuff to read, that it's still exciting at least. It's still going to draw you in from the first page. So working on that. And then also as of when I started recording this, I just finished up a Zoom meeting with the author that I've been helping her get her book on Amazon. And so that's been really cool to actually get to to talk with her and talk through these things. And fortunately, it went a lot smoother so far. We got to get the covers still and um, and then actually make sure that they're formatted properly. So that's where things can start getting kind of screwy. So we'll see what happens there. But I am cautiously optimistic that this will be done. Some other kind of exciting things moving on in the Didec household. Um, not solidified enough yet to really give an update as exactly what's happening, but things kind of on the job front that are pretty exciting. So still digging in really heavy duty into doing this podcast, and I am going to get back into the writing. That's that's for sure. But today's episode is probably going to end up being a little bit shorter. I'm guessing it's going to be fairly simple and straightforward because we're going to be developing a theme based off of just four words. And the inspiration for this discussion actually came from the writing community on Twitter and a theme I've seen develop there that I want to address. So this is one episode where I started with the writing topic, then decided on a theological topic to go with it. And oftentimes when I do that, things end up running a little bit shorter, but hopefully still awesome. You'll have to let me know. This theme that I began seeing all over the writing community, both on and off Twitter, actually, were questions like, my novel is now 80,000 words. Is that too much or too little? How many words should my chapters be? Is 40 chapters too many? And the problem with questions like these are that the answers are so incredibly context-specific. Imprudent advisors are just going to start spitting random facts they've uncovered, generating multiple and probably conflicting answers, and prudent advisors either keep scrolling or try to go down the rabbit hole of finding out all the details of the story that would be necessary to understand to give a true, honest, and helpful answer. It is very much the same in the Christian life. Day-to-day questions about understanding scripture or what God might be telling you to do at this or that time of your life or in a certain situation will either result in myriad, conflicting, and possibly heretical answers, or in well-meaning advisors trying to go down a rabbit hole that God, in trying to have a close personal relationship with you, only intended for you to go down. And God, in his infinite wisdom and foreknowledge, provided a lot of answers for us already in Scripture, if we know where to look and how to understand it. And that's why these four words are so critical to understand in their importance and meaning. Are you ready? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. The very first four words of Holy Scripture and the truth they hold continues to be relevant for the rest of history to this very moment and will be forever. What do I mean by this? Think of your favorite artist, whether it's a musician, a painter, sculptor, writer, poet, speaker, architect, anyone who creates. 
For most of them, you probably know their style. I remember hearing Mark Knopfler for the first time. Now, I had heard Dire Straits before, but my dad told me about this Mark Knopfler album he'd gotten. We're listening to it, and I think, gee, this sounds like Dire Straits. I think maybe I even asked him if it was. No, it's Mark Knopfler. So, I'm listening to it more, and a song here or there just sounds really familiar. Finally, one day I mention, this really, really sounds like Dire Straits, doesn't it? Revelation for both my dad and me. Well, Knopfler was the lead singer and guitarist of Dire Straits, but this is a solo album. I honestly believe I recognized his guitar more than his voice. But maybe for you, it's a painter. You can tell a Van Gogh or a Rembrandt on sight, even if it's one you've never actually seen before. A Frank Lloyd Wright house looks like a Frank Lloyd Wright house, even after you've only seen one or two and you learn about his unique style and philosophies regarding architecture. But all of these various artists and creators still got their inspiration from the world around them, whether the natural world as it lies, or they've pulled together the styles of two or more previous artists in a new and unique way that becomes their signature style, that other less genius artists, though still very talented, may copy to a degree or less until another seemingly completely unique artist takes the creative world in a brand new direction. But no matter how unique a style or medium is, it is always borrowed from some previous experience by the artist. What I mean when I say borrowed from the natural world. In some natural, physical, or mental-slash-emotional way, every artist for all time has taken what they've experienced so far, even if it comes from dreams or drugs, and creates what, to us, is unique, singular, and new but in actuality is still a natural, physical, or mental-slash-emotional inspiration. Sanderson says it this way in one of his lectures, Humans are not that good at creating something entirely new, but we can take a horn, put it on a horse, and call it a unicorn. That's kind of a basic example, but I think it works. Lincoln Park says it this way, Even a blueprint is a gift and a curse, because once you've got the theory of how the thing works, everybody wants the next thing to be just like the first. But in the beginning, God. God, when he created the universe, had nothing previous to draw inspiration from except himself. So, just like Rembrandt takes canvas and oils and paints in his own unique style, so God took from what existed, himself, and created everything in his own unique style. This is why, concerning the most basic natural world, David sings in Psalm 19, The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Some atheists will mock the universe Christians believe in, saying it seems like a wasted effort to have created all this space and planets and stars just for humans. And yet how could we even begin to conceive of an infinite God if the sun was truly only the width of your thumb and stars were little pinpoints on a flat, dark canvas? Instead, as our telescopes and spaceships stretch further out, trying to even comprehend uncountable stars with untravelable distances between them, and perhaps billions of planets all vaster than our own, can we begin to give thanks to a god who merely said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, and it was so? And then, faced with such grandeur as he created, he still turns to us and says, How often I have longed to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And, Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you. 
Those are from Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, and Zechariah chapter 2, verse 11, by the way. But the usefulness and application of those four words don't just stop there, and this is where we can get into some really helpful knowledge. I've hinted at this before in previous episodes, but today we get to talk about it straight out. There are essentially two ways to classify scripture, two very broad general ways. There are scriptures that relate the history of how God has interacted with and acted toward mankind, and there is scriptures that teach us about the kingdom of heaven. Now, there can be a fuzzy line here, as we're about to see, because actually all scripture teaches us about the kingdom of heaven. What I mean by this distinction, then, is that there are verses that we can pull directly out of scripture that say, this is how you should live. And there are others, most others actually, that say, this is what God did at this point in time. Where people that are unfamiliar with scripture, or are unfamiliar with this fact of scripture, get into trouble, is to think that all 66 books are filled with, this is how you should live. And this is why so many Christians ignore the Old Testament, or why non-believers dismiss Christianity outright because of some of the really weird stuff that happens in it. This is why we have the mixed-up belief of a wrathful and angry God and a compassionate Jesus. When Jesus himself says he and the Father are one, and he only came to say what the Father told him to say. And really, the big problem with this entire mindset is it reduces Christianity to basically a consumerist religion. A search for what can I get out of scripture for myself to either give me hope or a future or a reason to tell other people that what they're doing is wrong. With the proper understanding, though, suddenly the whole thing, from Genesis to Revelation, is a way for us to get to know God. And it ties back to what we've already said. This is God revealing his nature, character, and personality through what he has created, both the natural world and the history of his interactions with his chosen people. I'll give you a really quick and beautifully simple illustration, given to me, not personally, but through a video series, by Dr. Del Tackett of Focus on the Family. In his series called The Truth Project, Dr. Tackett points out that when God gave the law to Moses, it was not him sitting in heaven flipping a coin saying, heads murder is bad, tails it's okay, heads murder is bad, write it down Moses. Instead, murder is wrong because it is contrary to the nature of God. Now you might think, well, a lot of people died in the Old Testament at the command of God, so it seems like murder is very much in his nature. And first of all, punishment is not murder. Second, death only came because of mankind's sin, not because of God. So God did not create murder or even death, but opposition to his created order and opposition to his nature is death. So yes, both death and murder are contrary to God's nature, and that's why we can have the promise of eternal life with him if we choose to accept his eternal sacrifice through Jesus Christ. Everything he gives us in scripture then, all morality, is because of God's nature and character. Now we might read some of the Old Testament laws, and the light of understanding dawns on us as to why such or so is right or wrong. But then we can read some other laws and still think, a victim is required to marry her rapist? God's got a pretty messed up nature which is why our second point is so critical. Much, or perhaps most, of the Bible is God's nature interacting with ours. To the extent it seems weird or messed up is almost always the result of the culture of the time being weird or messed up. So we might think, why didn't God change culture then? Why didn't he say outright, treat your women better, don't have slaves, sacrifices are dumb and are cruel to animals, so cut that out, and basically act like woke people of the 21st century are going to think you should act now in Bronze Age Near East. I almost would like to see the year 3000, just to see where intellect and philosophy have gotten us by then, and what they'll think about our current woke culture, values, and assumptions. Yes, in many ways it's better than several thousand years ago, but it still falls short in a lot of areas. 
And what we learn from scripture is that we can still be obedient to God and act well, even during a time when the culture around us is screwed up. As Paul preached to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. The kingdom of heaven has not come yet, but God's justice and mercy can prevail in all situations, in all cultures, and at all times. It is up to us to understand his nature and character and learn and apply that to those situations we see in our current times. So, when people read the history of Christians interacting with culture, true, it may not result in some sort of radical utopia that is exactly how God would have designed it, but we threw that out with the first sin, remember? Instead, we can show love, respect, justice, and mercy to anyone and everyone we meet in their moment of need. This, too, then, is where we get the idea of foundational truth. If, in the beginning, God, and everything we've talked about so far, then those truths are woven into the fabric of all of his creation. But we must remember that fabric has been soiled by sin, and so still carries in it the twisting of what was supposed to be. Where our current postmodern culture has gone wrong is to think that because of that soiling and twisting, the fabric underneath doesn't exist. I've heard it explained this way, again from the Truth Project. Suppose we're in a cathedral, walls lined with stained glass, and we're each standing in a different pool of light colored by that stained glass. I'm standing in a blue light, you're standing in a yellow light. And so I say the light is blue, you say the light is yellow, and we're both right. Which is true, except there is still a sun shining behind that stained glass. And the sun is not hidden behind that glass forever, but has been revealed in these last days by Jesus Christ, God's Son. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. And no other name has been given under heaven by which we might be saved. Acts 4, verse 12. It is the atheist's or naturalist's folly to try to derive foundational truth and meaning from a world permeated by the twisting of sin. Nothing is functioning as it was designed to from the beginning, except the one who designed it. So it's akin to trying to rebuild an engine by looking at a similar engine that is also broken. But once we learn and understand that in the beginning, God, then we know that he is the blueprint. He is the go-by and the comparison for the way everything is supposed to work. We are to fashion our lives after his mold, shape our die by his cast, and build our structures using his building plans. And yet it still will not come out exactly the way it was supposed to, because we are still in our sinful flesh, in a sin-filled world. Christ is the cornerstone, as we're told, the only true and perfectly hewn, leveled, and set stone, off of which we try to align the rest of our building. But oftentimes, to build the rest, we're working with warped, rough-cut, blemished stones that cannot be set straight or level. Under such circumstances, it is difficult at best to execute a perfectly righteous act. And to the extent we do, it is only by the grace God gives us and by surrendering our will entirely to him. But it's okay. This isn't supposed to be a downer. Because God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Not only is Christ the cornerstone, but he is the final polisher and crucible. Our lives will be passed through the fire, as we've talked about previously, to test what we've done. What is worthless will burn up, but the rest will be refined and made pure and rewarded. What remains for us to do is to continue to carefully select our actions and line them up off the cornerstone to set them straight as best we can. And now we have 66 books by which to inspect those actions to see if they line up with the nature and character of God, now that, hopefully, we understand better how to read all those books, to understand not just the teachings, but the myriad stories within them, and how to peer through them to a perfect and living God. It is much the same with the books we read and write, and with stories in general. 
This too might take one basic understanding for everything else to make sense. The understanding is this. Stories have been around for millennia. Humankind has been telling stories since it was created almost. The first words recorded as being spoken by a human being was poetry, articulating in its way the intimacy shared between man and woman, and using a bit of storytelling as to why. She will be called woman for she was taken out of man. All our lives we are exposed to stories, from children's books that our parents or grandparents read to us to TV shows and movies. Our lives unfold before us, usually with us as the protagonist, though sometimes we might feel more like a side character in someone else's quest. And this, by the way, may or may not be a terrible thing, but we can't really get into that now, so just remember that Jesus said, the greatest among us should be the servant of all. One other way I want us to think about this. We might all know a storyteller. For me, it's particularly my brother-in-law, Sean, but the person who knows how to relate an event. Now, sure, not every time he speaks is it some enrapturing tale that carries us along on some magical ride, but when he wants to, my gosh, there's a bit of an art, a bit of skill to doing this. Now, just about everyone can relate a series of events, right? We can all talk about our day, what happened to us on the way to or from work, and we probably all practice that on nearly a daily basis. But there's something a little extra special with the way some people are able to relate their events to us, and this is the magic of story. As I said, it's something we're exposed to almost constantly, but it's rarely something we stop to define or have explained to us. And yet, because of that constant exposure to it, our brains automatically reject or struggle with events that don't fit the mold. Maybe it seems like it's boring, or we feel like we should be laughing, but instead we're sad, or we see the twist coming from a mile away and just wish the storyteller would get to the point because until then, we just have to sit and endure their attempt and delusion at being clever. These are all the results of failures of story. Unnecessary details clog the story and make it boring. The tone belongs to a tragedy when the events belong to a comedy. The clues are obvious or the plot devices are either too contrived or too similar to a story we've heard before, so we know where it's going long before the writer gets there. So when publishers and agents talk about word count, what they mean is that certain stories only take a certain amount of time to tell. They have in the past, they do now, and they likely will in the future. If your word count is too low, it's probably because you're leaving too much out. If it's too high, it's because you're adding too much fluff that the story doesn't need. And it's because agents and publishers have seen so many 100,000 word novels that only needed to be 80,000 that they just say stories in this genre are 80,000 words. So for new authors, it is critical to hit that word count because they don't trust you to write something longer that actually needs it. Established authors can and do exceed word count regularly, but they've already proven a flair for words that you have not proven, and their readers will eagerly devour a word count from them that they won't even pick up a book from you. Similarly, when we talk about chapter length, what we need to understand is that chapters are often little stories in themselves. There will often be some sort of arc, whether in plot or just theme or tone. A chapter should be almost like a short story set in a series of short stories. So how long the chapter is, is less critical than what it relates to the reader. If you cut off in the middle of action just to hit a word count, your readers won't like it. Just like if you keep rattling on when the reader needs a break, they won't like that either. Instead, your chapter should open at a place where the reader has some sense of setting out on a journey. It might be the overall journey when your characters literally set off down the road, It might be something little, like setting down to make their packing list for the upcoming journey. As I mentioned, it might be plot-driven like that, some sort of opening action, or it might even just be tone or theme-driven. The character is contemplating some fact of life based off what they learned in the previous chapter. 
Events from there should unfold naturally until the point where that sense of setting out has come to a close. They reach the first hotel or rest stop, or the list is completed, checked off, and the bags are sitting by the door. Or it can end in a cliffhanger. They suddenly realize they don't have a sleeping bag and REI is closed for the holiday. Or maybe they break down on a dark stretch of road and something is rustling in the cornfield adjacent. The point being that a chapter should have a sense of completeness more than it should hit a certain word count. Generally speaking, depending on the book you're writing, that sense of completeness should come at fairly regular intervals, which is why most books have fairly consistent chapter lengths, but they don't have to. The Life of Pi by Yann Martel had chapters of incredibly varying length. I think one was a page or less, while most were several or more pages. But Martel clearly organized that novel to hit 100 chapters precisely, more perhaps than he was focused on hitting specific word counts or chapter writing devices. Similarly, the number of chapters is irrelevant compared to the story. Once you've defined that, and the smaller events that make up the story, the number of chapters comes without thinking. Unless, of course, you're Jan Martel. But also understand that he did that for a specific reason. And this is why it is so dangerous to divorce words and numbers from the story. Because I could simply point to Martel and say, my book is going to be 100 chapters too. But when I don't understand why he did that, and since my chapters tend to be consistently between 3,000 and 5,000 words, now all of a sudden I end up with a 500,000 word tome that is only that long because I wanted a certain number of chapters, and I've crammed it with a whole ton of stuff no one cares about or wants to read. Or I cut down by ways unseen so much to try to hit 80,000 words that now the story doesn't make sense and doesn't set up the rest of the series. Now, I have admitted previously that the book does wax a little long between the 50 to 75% mark, but only by enough that it should be shortened by 10,000 or so, bringing it down to 120,000 words, certainly not 80,000 or even 100,000 words. So, tell your story. If you find yourself exceeding certain word counts and your readers are complaining of being bored or not understanding why they need to read what they're reading, then consider cutting stuff out. Or, if you're falling far short of a certain word count and your readers are confused and don't understand what's going on, then add more details to help them and increase your word count. But never ever adjust your word count simply because it's not one certain number or other. And if an agent or publisher says they won't print a story by you over a certain word count, see if maybe you don't need to write a different story for now until you prove your prowess with words and can get away with something longer. Just remember, it's not about the word count, it's about the story. Stories that have been around since the beginning. As always, I hope this has been helpful. That's all we have for this week. Join me again next week as we finally get to talk about love. This one's coming straight from the Bible, so make sure to bring some popcorn and a drink, settle in, and enjoy. Until then, keep the faith and keep writing.